0: When you come from a people who have been subjugated for hundreds of years, and as a child, there's always that time when you learn like, oh, I come from slaves. And that's a very painful thing to learn. And so I think it is so crucial to teach people your ancestors resisted slavery every step of the way.
1: In this episode, we're going to tell you about the ways that it really actually kicked off on quite a few ships. We're going to be diving into what happened on a ship called the Little George. Desiree, have
2: you ever been on a ship, like a proper ship, not a not a ferry, not a
1: yacht, a ship? Okay. Once I, I taught a workshop on a cruise liner. Like it was one of those huge ones. That's almost not a ship anymore. It's like a mall on the sea. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Out of curiosity, what do you know about 18th century ships in particular?
2: I, th- I actually thought I knew a bit about them, but I think it's just because I've seen a few drawings of them <laughs> yeah. throughout my life. So you're like, yeah, I get it.
1: Yeah, like you definitely are just like, ah, oh, it's a bunch of billowy sails. <laughs> right. And I don't know, I've seen Pirates of the Caribbean. <sighs> yeah, it was like the Little the, of the Santa Maria, that was a long time ago. But right. I-, I don't know. It's the ship, right? Wood? <laughs> yes.
2: But this, but this period of time and these particular ships, no, I don't know anything about this. I really, really don't. I've been very much faced with my lack of... knowledge of this particular area and time and arena
1: and all i know is about all of the slaves that were transported in those ships because that's something that you hear about you know the middle passage and all of that but i don't know anything about what would have happened on there aside from enslaved people dying
2: yeah it's detail that we know nothing about we don't have the details of this kind of this period of time and and these places i think there's a reason i think i for one didn't want to know really more than I did. So today's gonna be quite interesting. Yeah.
1: No, I would agree with that. I think
2: the minute I hear ships, 18th century slaves, I know that there's gonna be a lot of uh, horror, Mm. injustice, brutality, and that taps into a kind of deep set fear, really, really low that I've suddenly realized, Desiree, since we've been doing this, how low down I keep that, because it's a fear that I genuinely have ran from. Since the first time I heard about slavery oh, and, and enslaved people, I was like, "That's all I need to know."
1: Yeah, I mean, I—it's hard not to, Makita. Like, what I remember being taught is that you. Desiree, you, because of where I went to school, you, black kid in this class, came from slaves. Everyone's looking at me. I'm looking at the book. There's other people who look like me. They were slaves. And, you know, and then it's like when you think about the boats, it's people dying in pestilence and disease, like in a dark, like place just crammed together, Mm. or else being thrown or jumping overboard and being at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Like it's all the dark. Darkest, most horrific horror movie shit I could possibly Mm. fathom. So I can't blame you for not wanting to know about these damn ships. All I want to know is get the hell off the ship. Anytime we're in the ship, get off the ship. Yeah, can't be on the ship.
2: They've never sounded like a safe space. No,
1: no, (laughs) or or a place
2: where anything good happens. But I think I think today is going to be a very different kind of story.
1: I am very, very excited to hear the stories that I haven't heard about these ships. I'm Makita Oliver. And I'm Desiree Birch. And this is Escape, the Underground Railroad podcast. A collection of stories
2: about the rebellions, escapes and uprisings of our enslaved ancestors served alongside the powerful and evocative Amazon Prime video series, The
1: Underground Railroad. We're going to be exploring the strengths, struggles, and strategies of our super smart, inventive ancestors. The real life, formidable heroes through history who never back down in the face of brutality. We have the wonderful Dr. Rebecca Hall, author of Wake, The Hidden History of Women-Led Slave Revolts, on hand to make everything clear.
0: Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much for being here. Rebecca Hall is a scholar, author, activist, and educator. She writes and publishes on the history of race, gender, law, and resistance. Rebecca is also the grandchild of slaves.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this wasn't based on any complex genealogical research. It's just the fact that my father's father and mother were born slaves. And that is because there was a very large generation skip in my family. You know, I was born when my father was 65. You know, he was born in 1898. (laughs) Okay, wow. Yeah, and, you know, both of his parents were born in 1860. Hmm. You know, his father in western Tennessee uh, on a plantation and his mother on a plantation in Missouri.
2: It's funny that we can find it so abstract, though, the information that we have because the only thing that I've ever known, sorry, not ever, I've only recently found out maybe the last 10 years that my great, great, Grandmother Eleanor, she was mixed... And she was half Scottish, which I am actually half Scottish, mm. and that was because her mother we think was raped by the plantation owner. So, the, and that was just like the slavery story in our family. But you know, since unpacking all this and watching the series and doing this podcast and having these discussions, this this idea is no longer abstract and yeah. very right. intense and very close to me suddenly. Right. Um, so I think the, the personal taking who you are back into it something I've never wanted to face, but. important.
1: In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, a ship sails peacefully. There's a monotony to the movement of the ship. The waves, the breeze, the seagulls. On the ship, there's the hum of the crew. As we move to the interior of the ship, it's hot, wet and humid. The stench of human sweat, waste and pain fills the air amidst this there are whispers soft footsteps the movement of tools and weapons being passed through the grate above to the waiting hands below deck the clank of chains moving tense whispered instructions provide the cue for the start of the plan and then silence
2: Today, we're going to talk about the Little George. So tell us what you can about the Little George. Where do we start?
0: I encountered the Little George when I was doing my dissertation research 15 years ago. And when I was in England researching the slave trade and slave ships and slave ship revolts, I mainly relied on captain's logs on slave ships and surgeon's logs on slave ships. This document Appears to be more like written testimony from the captain of the ship, the Little George, and is from Rhode Island, which Rhode Island was extremely implicated in in the slave trade. You know, in the 1700s, its whole economy evolved around the slave trade, basically. So he's describing what happened in this revolt on his ship in 1730. The testimony starts: I, George Scott. Master of the sloop, the Little George, belonging to Rhode Island, sailed from the Banana Islands. These are islands that are pretty far off the coast of Sierra Leone, which he calls Guinea. The first day of July, 1730, having on board 96 slaves, 35 of which were men. So the remaining
2: 61 are women? And possibly children, yes. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. I love that, you know, that intro to that, like, it's like the intro to the Canterbury Tales or something that you've gone over this information so much, you know, how his documentation starts before you get into the (laughs) story of it.
2: I am George. Yeah. (laughs) So where would George, where would he have found these men and
0: women and children? It's not exactly clear, but probably from what we would now call Sierra Leone, which the people who are native to that area were rice growers. And in the southern part of what would become the United States, in, in the southern part of the British colony, you know, the Carolinas, rice growing was a really big thing, but Europeans had no experience doing it. And so they really relied on the technological ability of the people they enslaved to grow this crop. Who were these people? People who were caught up in the slave trade, who were captives in the slave trade uh, at this point in time in the 1730s, would have some specific positionalities in the different nations in West Africa. So, they could be criminals. They could be the equivalent of like serfs, uh, or or they could be you know after a war. Was fought. They, they could be the defeated, you know, members of the defeated army. There's quite a developed women's martial tradition in uh, many of the nation states of West Africa at this time. So, That's just a
2: great sentence, isn't it? Women's martial tradition. I've yeah. never even like, it
0: just sounds power.
1: Yeah. And a, <laughs> yeah. a long legacy of right? power. It, yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. 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 So... It's quite possible that of the women who were caught up in this trade, some of them could have been anything from like official soldiers to women who were trained in self-defense, you know, who worked to defend their villages or mm-hmm. e- et cetera.
2: I mean, can you just imagine that you come to this, like George and his guys come to this island. They're like, yeah, yeah, they, 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 they look good. Let's take them completely unsuspecting that they have a sort of female army. On well, their hands. Yeah.
1: They're only looking at like a third of the people they've brought on as potential dangers. And the right. rest of them are a bit of fun. Although all of those fun bits are going to kick your ass. Like right. you need to yeah, pay attention.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know what happened on the little Georgian. I don't know if they got an entire female army on that ship, but it has happened. It happened in other ships. But the issue about women On the ship, it occurs right from the very beginning where he says, you know, we have 96 slaves, 35 of which are men. He's only counting the men, you know? Yeah. And even though they're the minority of people on the ship, and then the ship is 300 miles off the coast of West Africa at this point. And so what would happen at this point is that everyone would be chained below deck while the ship was on. The coast of West Africa. But once it got into the Atlantic, like this ship was, the men were kept below chained and the women were brought on deck uh, and unchained. Mm -hmm. And they say the men slaves got off their chains. I mean, we don't know how that happened, uh, but they might have gotten some assistance.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess as long as you're only, like, if you're considering all the Black people property, and then the women are even below the male versions of property, like, you're not looking at them for coming up with anything cunning. They're just to be used. And so why not have them freely on board? Because it's not Mm. like they're people who are going to defend themselves.
0: Right, right, exactly. You know, they don't have any political agency. I think they're relying on Their cultures, traditional gender roles about who fights and who doesn't fight. And also sailors having access to women's bodies was a very kind of disgusting and important part of the slave trade.
1: Yeah, I'm guessing it's probably why they were, some of those sailors were there. Like, oh, well, why not sail on these ships?
2: But like, and also, was it a part of like establishing that sort of horrific power structure from the get-go sort of to show the men they could take their women, do whatever they wanted mm. with them? It was it was sort of like the beginning?
0: Well, I don't know if the women, belo- you know, belong to the men, you know, but I think, you know, the women themselves, rape is a war crime, you know. Rape is, a, is a, like a tool of of domination, you know, that's just as powerful as chains or being whipped or something like that.
2: I just wanted to talk a little bit about these conditions uh, because I think it's important that, you know, that we talk about just like how much these human beings had been taken and immediately treated like cargo and crammed in and and when they laid on top of each other and stuff.
0: You know, it depends on the ship. I, I know most about the British trade. So the slave trade occurred over like a 400-year period, and different empires were ascendant at different times. So like the Portuguese st- started it, and then it was the Spanish and the Dutch and the French. The English became, you know, like ascended the primary traders in the 18th century, in the 1700s. And that is also when the vast majority of enslaved Africans were captured. So 80% of the trade happened while the British were in charge of the slave trade. And they had very regulated policies for how slave ships should be operated, you know, that were like, literally like laws and regulations from, you know, from Parliament and from the Royal African Company and etc. And the issue about keeping women on deck unchained is it was actually like an official part of their policy. In terms of The conditions on ships, if you, anyone is familiar with the Brooks diagram, you you know, it's a famous diagram of people on a a slave ship where Mm. people are packed so tightly that you wouldn't be able to sit up for (sighs) most of the journey. And it's all talked about and thought about like cargo and cargo spoilage and and so forth.
2: Um, That's really heavy. That's a lot. Yeah. Just just the the fear. Sorry. It's just... It's, you know, it's just... Sorry, it's just, like, a lot. It is. And we've just been... I don't really know how to say it. It's just... feel... like I can't take any more. And, yeah, I I knew that from when I was really young. I was like, I can't take any more of this information. And I was with a friend yesterday and I started to tell him that I was doing work around this and he was like, I don't want to know about it. And he's, like, a a black young man from Sierra Leone. He was like, I know enough. I've known what I've... Found out all I need to know, and I think that that happens a lot. You don't want to. After a while, he said he just got angry, and I don't get angry. I just uh, I just sit in the terror of the personal stories, and I find it hard to give these people personalities and dreams and fears and hopes because it hurts even more to know what happened.
1: Sorry, I, I don't think it's going to be the last time anybody cries during this process. Let's be real. Because it was all too much, you know, when your grandmother and just. Even yeah. when
2: I know that we have a story with a better outcome, it's the entering back in. It just, it's yeah. a lot every time. Sorry, I'm trying my best. Yeah. And and the, I suppose these people didn't even know where the hell they were going.
0: There were, you know, they're called slave castles, where different, for example, the British would have like forts on the coast. First. And okay. people, yes. captives were kept there in what were called barracoons slave ships would would often travel, you know, quite the length of the West African coast, adding 20 here, 40 here, you know, 30 there, depending on, you know, how many enslaved people were in the barracoons and what types of people and what they were looking for. So all that time that those captives were... On the the ship that was slowly traveling down the West African coast, they were chained below deck. And it it could literally be months.
1: Oh, my God. Of just going down the coast, picking up more slaves, that they were just chained down there.
0: Right. It's important to make a distinction between, you know, African elites and people who were implicated in the trade and the people who kind of would engage in, in cutoffs. What would tend to be like the non-elite or, Hmm. you know, people from a conflicting nation state that was trying to, you know, get their people back. Yeah. There's
2: a phrase that we've heard that's new to me, which is the cutoff. What does the
0: cutoff mean, Dr. Hall? When a slave ship was on the coast of Africa, the slave traders were very, very vigilant about making sure that their ship was not attacked by Africans who would then free the enslaved people on the ship. Mm-hmm. And so if that happened, that was called a cutoff.
2: Africans on the water.
0: Well, Africans, you know, on the coast. But yeah, they, they would use canoes or whatever to like, you know, attack the ship. And that's why um, everyone, men and women, were kept chained below deck when the ship was anywhere near the coast of Africa to try to prevent them from being liberated through cutoffs. And as we'll see in the Little George, that's something that, that happens, but I don't want to spoil a surprise.
1: Sorry, just to clarify, within those like 300 uh, nautical miles or whatever it is, you know, close to the shore, the fear was if you're going into an African nation, they know what you're coming for. They can plan to ambush you. So what they want to do is to keep all the slaves locked down so at least they can't rally together to overtake the sailors on the ship.
0: Yes, that's basically correct. Okay. And what's really important to understand about the slave trade, and I think it's it's really hard, because it's so fraught, is that, you know, we're we're told one of two narratives, right? One is that Africans were like kidnapped by Europeans, and put on slave ships. And then the other extreme is that Africans sold their brothers and sisters into slavery, right? And both of those things are wrong. And they also don't, Take into account that this happens over a 400 year period, and things change over 400 years. I mean, this is what historians study: is change over time, right? So, yeah. in the very beginning, you know, in the late 1400s, the early 1500s, there would be trading African elites, you know, kings or you know chiefs or who would would trade their criminals or their serfs or their war captives or whatever with Europeans in exchange for luxury items. But when Europeans first came to the West African coast, they tried to just do the whole come on and kidnap thing. And they got slaughtered, you know, because, (laughs) you know, in that time period, you know, like like the 1500s or whatever, Europeans had no military advantage over over the nations in West Africa. I mean, they had these muskets, right? But I mean, it would take like three minutes to load them and God forbid, they would get wet. And, you know, and by the time that happened, they would have been, you know, killed by 20 iron arrows. And, you know, Mm. in West Africa, uh, there were very complex nation states at this time. And they had been working iron as long as Europeans had. By the time you get up to the 1700s, you know, the 1600s and 1700s, you get into a situation where the technology, the European technology hasn't advanced. Mm -hmm. And it becomes this thing where African countries need to either trade slaves or be traded. And so do you have African nation states that are actually going to war to try to capture people that they can then sell to the Europeans. So the Europeans are not like wandering all over West Africa. They're like staying in their forts on the edge of the water.
1: Thank you so much for clarifying this, because there's like a lot of misconceptions. First is sort of looking at uh, African tribal nations or nation states through the lens of Western eyes, which is a mistake that gets made over and over again throughout the slave trade. And even now looking back at it, like these were different tribes who had different political prisoners of war, other captive, you know, it's like, that isn't my brother. We just fought them. So I'm happy to trade them for stuff because I don't know them. and I want this stuff. You know, and then That's
0: also an important thing. Like, you know, the Africa in some ways is like a twentieth century construct, right? They're not like your fellow brothers and sisters from Africa. It's like, you know, we're Dahomey, you know, and you're Yoruba. You know, you're our enemy. You've been our enemy for 500 years, you know? <laughs> like, yeah.
1: That's like saying all of the... Uh, you're Europe. You're all friends, right? You're all exactly. the same. And they're like, uh, new. No. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't even use the term tribe. I mean, I use the term nation state because the Akan, the Ashantes, King, I mean, their Kumasi, their capital had 100,000 people in it.
1: Mm. Yeah. Uh,
0: I mean, this is a whole other area of history that needs to be taught and corrected.
1: But I, thank you so much for, like, helping us to learn and correcting it now. So Mm -hmm. like part of this whole drive and the amp up of the slave trade is because of the advance of technology and Europeans like updating the musket to like really high functioning guns and other things that African nation states realize that they need in order to compete at all with the European colonizers and or with each other.
0: Well, exactly. You know, like it became like it's often called the gun slave cycle where it's like we need the guns to prevent our people from being caught and traded. The other factor too is just a massive increase in demand mm-hmm. because from the beginning of the trade, you know, the 1400s, 1500s, this is before plantation slavery in the Americas. But by the time you get into the 1600s, you know, there's this massive endless demand for African workers and African workforce. And so that dynamic, that that, that pull force has a, a huge impact on, on what happens in West Africa. And in fact, by the time, the slave trade was over and, you know, the Western parts of Africa were almost demographically exhausted, mm. which, oh yeah. you know, many say left them open for European colonization. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So this is all basically like this is the establishment of economics as we know it, basically, right. like right. in the modern day, it seems like. Right. Whew. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> it's just,
2: a yeah. lot. Whoa. <laughs> Tell us a little bit, Dr. Hall, about what it was like on deck of the Little George. What's the atmosphere saying?
0: Well, we're not really clear about what the conditions were on the deck. And the ship is called a sloop, which is a smaller than normal slave ship.
2: But we do know that once they were about 300 miles from the shore, the women are then let above deck and, God forbid,
0: unchained. Right. And And then the shit hits the fan, right?
1: So
0: so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, if you, you look at his statement, he says, you know, making their way through the bulkhead of the deck, the slaves killed the watch who were sleeping. So the watch was asleep and like threw them overboard. And then he says, Captain George Scott, I being in my cabin and hearing a noise upon the deck and hearing the watch being thrown overboard, he gets his pistol and, and shoots up the scuttle, which is this opening that allows you to travel between decks really quickly. Dad didn't do anything, but the captives, who are now free, confined everyone else, all the other slavers, below in their cabin, basically just locked them into their cabin. So they're they're stuck there in their cabin. And then they're like okay what are we gonna do we're in the cabin we've so they, they're gonna make some kind of i guess they're like mock would be like a molotov cocktail right i mean it's they're, they're filling round bottles with like gunpowder mm. and put a fuse to it and they're getting it all ready to like you know throw and then the captives drop an axe down and that lands on those things and they blow up and so it Sets everything on fire in the cabin that the slavers are locked in. And it discharged whatever firearms they had left, the, These right. explosion, and destroyed our clothes and burnt the man that had the bottle in his hand in a most miserable manner, and myself with the rest very much hurt thereby. Oh, please.
2: Um, yeah. Are we talking about a, a, a small burn on the hand after... The other violence that's happening on this ship.
1: Yeah, right. Well, I guess I he got, needed like, a hand to write all the tales down. Here, <laughs> you know, you gotta leave one of them around to go tell the others how bad they fucked How badly
2: you brutalizing <laughs> this shit was. Okay, I mean,
1: right. And this is essentially. Because these doofuses were like, what are these women gonna do except for be our pleasure and allow, like, you know, we're gonna rape them and toy with them and show our, exert our power and not think that they are going to be able to help orchestrate or at least facilitate like a massive upheaval because like right. they, it seems like in short order, like, you know, figure out, okay, the watch is gone, one guy's warm, but everybody else gets locked up. And then they're like, "Okay, now let's burn it down, you know, and like just and gave them all like very short notice as to what to do and ruined all of their weapons in the meantime, which I think is like genius. Genius. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But in order to even see the women involved in this revolt, you need to read the document against the grain because he does not mention women once.
1: Does he still not get it? Like, does he still not
0: understand what they did? Yeah. And that you know, one third of the captives managed to do all of this, right? Yeah. Just two
1: thirds sat there just
0: like sat there doing nothing. It's like oh you know right, exactly. Vapors. Women are never mentioned once in this document. I suppose it's in the realm of possibility that the women sat there and did nothing. I just think that's very unlikely. <laughs>
2: no, but I, don't you think it's far more likely that George wants to tell his story the way he wants to tell his story? He's not going to well, say I that a
0: load of chicks took him down. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's embarrassing, right? But, right? That. But I have unfortunately <laughs> read hundreds of Captain's Logs of Slave Ships, and so many of them, it's like the women are invisible to them. And there are other slave ships as well where the captain or whoever's taking the report very much sees the women's involvement. But, you know, mostly you have to sort of read between the lines to find the, the women's agency in these, in these revolts.
2: But essentially, Dr. Hall, the, the sort of naivety of the white men on the ship, their underestimation, sorry, of the black enslaved women is what gets us to the revolt.
0: Well, yes, and this is a really, really crucial point. If we're going to talk about slave ship revolts, we need to understand that, you know, historians have been able to enter this data into databases and query databases of like over 35,000 slave ship voyages. And one of the first things that they found was that there were revolts on one in 10 of these ships that were documented, right? We don't know about Mm -hmm. the ships that didn't make it to land that were documented. And that's much more than anyone thought. Uh, because it had been previously thought that it was a very rare occurrence because it was often suicide. You're in the middle of the ocean. There's no way to get back to anywhere to land. But then when these historians compared the ships and looked at like, well, like what's the difference between the ships that had revolts and the ships that didn't have revolts? They found that the ships that had revolts had more women on them. Wow. Yeah. And then their response, (sighs) these historians, their response was, well, this must be like a statistical fluke because we know that African women weren't involved in coordinated acts of violence like revolt.
1: Because they knew so much about African women. Right? Exactly. Like a- all of Africa, all of and Africa, its women and all of its women. They knew so much about that uh, they continued to let them roam around on okay. deck. And when there was a majority of them roaming around on deck, that's when they would have a a, a revolt and right. never connected the dots. Right. I mean, right, right, like, Jeez. and I think even aside yeah. from that, there is the sort of like cultural thing of like when you empower women in any situation, you empower the entire culture. You know, it's just mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's part of what we do. Black Mm -hmm. girl magic. I don't know. But, like, I think of any culture, it's, you know, when they talk about, like, whatever uh, politics in the Middle East, they talk about educating and specifically educating young girls and women because that brings all communities up. So, like, it doesn't surprise, I don't think, any woman listening to this that that's where the revolts would happen. That's where the sort of communication ideas and, like, you know, let's form a cunning plan would happen. But also, they're wandering around, like a uh, duh. Where,
0: where the weapons are <laughs> kept, too. Yeah, right. Like
1: and the tools. What? Yeah. And you the don't tools. think I know how to kill you, and you don't think I would want to after you've raped me? Right. Okay. Right.
0: You know, another thing that we need to ask historians is whenever we're looking at a primary source, we ask, why is this document being created? Mm. What's the audience? What's it for? You know, and these detailed captainships logs were kept primarily to document things for insurance companies, for companies that insured the slave trade. So like Lloyd's of London, for example, that got its start insuring slave ships. Sorry,
2: Lloyd's of London Insurance Group, I have heard of, still exists (laughs) in this country, insured slave ships. Yeah.
1: Good to know.
2: That's why they're still around. (laughs) Sorry, that is quite a lot for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why, after everything else we've heard, but that's just intense.
0: And that's so important to understand that the slave trade was a massive business practice in the UK. Highly regulated, you know, financed, insured, capitalized. You know, there are historians, economic historians, who argue that the money and resources that came from the slave trade helped substantially facilitate the industrialization of the UK and gaining its financial position.
2: Oh my goodness.
0: Yeah. Some of the things that we
2: are hearing are just um, so heavy. Uh, And just the fact that there was such civility, that all the business side of it has this sort of gleam of a civilized nation doing a very civilized thing. Exactly and it's just right. Only
1: if it's property. Uh, if right. you can only think about it as we're just exchanging property and goods for money.
2: Right. Which is why that narrative, the commitment, this is what I've been like the commitment to that narrative is so important because if that slips for one second, we're fucked. Yeah. Everything's fucked and nothing means anything.
0: And that's yep. what is so intense about this term insurrection of cargo cargo does not insurrect yeah (laughs) you know and so the The sugar didn't come up a bunch of fabric doesn't get up yeah just come up and slap people around and get. i mean (laughs) (laughs) that's such a good point so that conflict that you're discussing is built right in the the term in the insurance policy
2: That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, so we, we do, we, we're going to get back to the, yes. uh, to the
0: little George. Yes. Um, Let's
1: head back to the little George.
0: Okay, where are we?
1: The battle is in full swing. People are being killed left, right, and center. And what happens next?
0: They're all burnt in the cabin. And it just, you know, goes back and forth and back and forth. And then he says, the attack occasioned all the men slaves to betake themselves to the quarter deck over our heads. How does he know they're men slaves? He can't see them. But again, that's Mm. another issue. So how the little George ends, he describes the white people are locked in the cabin. They have nothing to eat but some raw rice. Uh, They've been These are the
1: ones that weren't burnt.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And the captives sailed the ship, the 300 nautical miles back to Sierra Leone and up the Sierra Leone River for like three miles and then with the assistance of other Africans they made their escape and the whites were still stuck on the sloop.
1: <laughs> okay, so they're currently fighting their enslavers, who most of whom they've trapped in a deck. And then they figured out, even though they were in the belly of the boat, how to sail the boat and navigate it back to where they'd come from. <laughs> they go up the coast. Yeah. And then coordinate with all the other people on the shore to like get them off. And then I guess they're not cruel enough to go chain up their enslavers inside, which is how they're eventually able to get out. These Uh people are just happy to be back home, which they Uh somehow figured out how to do from the middle of the ocean.
2: Uh, I'm just visually seeing this. Fucking boat turning around and going back to <laughs> yeah. Africa. It's just too brilliant. It's just too good. I just don't... I didn't think visually you'd get such a... It's just kind of what you want to hear, and you don't hear that often in these
0: stories. I mean, occasionally there are stories of slave ship revolts where they killed all the white people except the navigator. And they're like, if you want to live, sail us back, right? Mm. I have no idea... In this case, I don't know how these particular captives sailed the ship back.
2: Whatever. It went back. It went back. Yeah. They did it somehow. Yeah, they were back. like,
1: we are not going anywhere, but right, <laughs> right back home.
2: Exactly. <laughs> wow. So proud of them. So yeah.
0: proud
1: of them. I, so incredible.
0: There's a point that I really want to make about the British and their history of the slave trade. You know, the British like to think that their role in the slave trade was ending it. And that was their entire role. And we learn about Wilberforce and we learn about, you know, this top-down story of like this moral conflict and et cetera. And, you know, uh, props to Wilberforce, you know, I have nothing against Wilberforce, Hmm. but you know, the thing is, is that they don't want to tell you the story of how the UK was completely implicated in the slave trade. And in this like Legally, you know, like it's not like these criminals were doing this thing, it was the law.
1: Yeah, it sounds like they were big players in the slave trade for quite some
0: time, right? The biggest, you know, 80% of the trade happened through UK ships, Mm. as a
2: British mixed race woman person not one iota of that is taught to us in our education at any time of our lives in any of the history we're ever taught about who british people are i mean Ooh. i mean not one thing
1: only victors and honorable people always. absolutely yeah same in america mm-hmm. i yeah. mean do
2: you feel like there's as much lack of these stories in america when you were growing up desiree did you know more than me
1: no, I didn't know until an adult how much Britain profited off of the slave trade. Like, obviously, you think about America, and slavery is always sort of, like, foisted directly upon but Americans. That. You know, the Dutch don't talk about their involvement. The British, you know, like, oh, we had a lot of honorable caucuses, and we ended it, or whatever, right? But that's mm-hmm. what you hear. You know, nobody talks about why the hell Liverpool is even a place, you know? <laughs> or, like, you know, why, sta- this why story, a statue yeah. of Colton has to get torn down in bristol and like looking at the customs houses where people would have been like where where at least the books were kept like the kind of severity of those things all of these things were things that i learned separately as an adult i mean not to mention america doesn't necessarily look outside of itself for anything you know so it's not even like focused on that it doesn't even like shift blame you know it's like you would have learned about the triangle you know, broadly. So you would have learned that, like, yes, other p- places played a part, but it still always felt like, well, America, you know. Yeah. Damn
2: you, America, you terrible bastards. But actually.
1: Yeah. Although at the time, in America, those were British people, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: There's that. But also in America, that horrible slavery occurred A million years ago and so me who's like a granddaughter of slaves that's unusual right i mean i'm 58 right the fact that you have two generations back to back between today and slavery is just proof that this was not something that happened a long time ago
1: no no no
2: no and i I think that's why it carries so much terror and horror and because it's just like it feels far too recent also there's this other thing i've been realizing which is when you watch the series and when you hear these stories you There's a part of me that goes, oh, no, I can't go. Well, thank God that's over. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's it's all still here in all these different ways. And that's what feels so heavy. We're not talking about something that's over.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I guess nobody wants to talk about the ghost in the attic and the basement and the walls.
2: But what I do want to hear is the story of the female warriors who took over that ship and turned it around and took it back home. That's the kind of story I want to hear. So thank (laughs) you so much, Rebecca. Yeah. Little George.
0: The thing is, and this is the frustrating thing about doing this history, like, you know, we don't know who these women were specifically. We don't know what their stories were specifically. Like, we can make some guesses about them and... You know, if they're coming from Sierra Leone, you know, it was the women who grew rice. So there was a very high demand for women, which is probably why there were twice as many women on the ship than there were men. Mm, yeah. So we have to make these kind of educated guesses. You've got mm. the Fon of Dahomey that have a massive female martial tradition. In fact, they fielded armies of women. Like people reported, you know, 10,000 women soldiers fighting in battles. And there's definitely... You know, evidence of these women, you know, as captives getting caught in the trade and being brought to like the Caribbean or whatever in large groups. So you could have a ship full of, of you know soldiers, you know, of course, you'd have a lot of revolts. And then when they get to land, you know, there's big insurrections in the Americas as well. I guess I'm curious to know,
1: and, and maybe there's record of this, maybe you would know, maybe you wouldn't, but all of those slaves who turned the little George around and got off of it, it, those enslaved people who got off of it and went back to Sierra Leone, they wouldn't have all been from Sierra Leone, right? So what happens to them then?
0: Yeah, I have no idea. I really don't. I mean, they could have all been from Sierra Leone, they could have been from a variety of places. And I just, I don't know. And I don't think there's really a way to know. But we do know in the Americas now where different ethnicities were congregated in different parts of the Americas. So, you know, we can say, we can talk about that and not so much individuals. But, you know, we know that, you know, there were large numbers of Igbo in the mid-Atlantic States and there were a large number of people from Sierra Leone who were in the Carolinas, and we know that there were a lot of Akan-speaking people who were enslaved who lived in New York and in Haiti. You know the farm from Dahomey. So we've been able to like do that kind of work, which is quite fascinating. Really, actually, but not individual.
1: That's still hugely important to know. It's like if your people, you know, kind of were in Kentucky around slavery, they're more likely to have come from these nation states or these areas than others. I think that's Mm -hmm. hugely important because that's definitely a lot more than most African-Americans have about any kind of sort Mm -hmm. of cultural route except for broadly Western Africa. So I think being able to know Mm. that kind of thing is, or, or to be able, to find it if you go looking is so huge. Right. I have to say, like, Rebecca, what I'd like to know is what it is that you love about these stories. What What is it that draws you in and keeps you coming back to them?
0: They don't teach anything about slave resistance or revolts in schools here. Very little. And so that's why I've been drawn to slave resistance and women in particular. I mean, I think that's just kind of like the issue squared. And yeah. I've always been fascinated by women warriors ever since I was a little kid. I don't, you know, you know, yeah. Zena still my favorite television show. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Black
1: women have been leading this shit for eons. <laughs> like there's just something so so powerful in listening to these stories to be like when i look at people who are prominent in in black lives matter and other movements now and looking back to our ancestors this is our ancestors revolution as well this is a hopefully a continuation of that mm. if we can connect to that Power and that intensity that we have, you know, been purposefully cut off from because why would they want to teach us to destroy their stuff and overturn things? You know, it makes perfect sense for them to maintain control, to not teach us that. It's just unfortunate that we don't uh, facilitate means of teaching ourselves, at least until now, you know, and other things like this to go, this is exactly our ancestors' revolutions. and, And in fact, we can take inspiration from them to be even more organized and strategized and you know um, crafty and I won't advocate for violence but let's say intense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: but I think also it's like what I was saying to I think my mother was that it just feels like there was this real terror the, re- the real proper terror from the white man about our power and magic from the minute they saw us. It was like, we need to get them down now. And I think that the knowledge of knowing that, us having the knowledge of our uprising and our revolts just taps us back into our magic. And no one wants us getting too close mm-hmm. to that. Cause look what we do when we're uh, near we it. When we least expect it, <laughs> Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most unsuspected. So thank you for this story. Truly Dr. Hall, I've absolutely loved hearing this story we needed this story today we did
1: yes thank you so thank
0: much thank you Thank you.
2: if you haven't watched the barry jenkins series it's poignant and powerful and on amazon prime video now don't forget to follow or subscribe to the podcast we'll be back next week with another story of an audacious escape